People matter, freedom matters, peace matters. And to liberty, and to freedom. Free its people. March with me under the banner of freedom. Belief in freedom. Defending the frontiers of freedom. To ensure freedom. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Welcome uh, to McDonnell Laurier Institute. My name is Miriam Amar Sadegi. I'm very happy to be here today with uh, my good friend and colleague at the McDonnell Laurier Institute, Kaveh Shahruz. Kaveh is also a senior fellow um, at the think tank. And um, without further ado, Kaveh John, thank you so much for making the time uh, for this conversation. I want to start by um, asking you a bit about your personal life and motivations for all the good work that uh, you've done. N many people in Iran have a close family member who was killed as part of the 1988 prison massacre, uh, for which the current president, Ibrahim Raisi, is, is uh, in great part responsible. Um, but not a lot of people, if any, have devoted their lives uh, in the way that you have uh, to uh, justice for the victims and uh, so much more in terms of countering uh, the Iranian regime. Could you speak a bit about how uh, growing up you thought about the massacre and how you chose your career as an attorney and have devoted yourself so courageously to this cause? Thanks so much, Mariam, and it's lovely to be with you. Thanks so much for uh, having me on. So, yes, I mean, the 1988 massacre figures pretty prominently in my life story, and I've written about this before, um, back right at the time of the revolution, or maybe just a year after the revolution. Uh, my uncle, my maternal uncle, uh, who was about 19 at the time, was arrested for peaceful political activities, um, given what I, I think is probably, you know, a two minute or five minute trial, quote unquote, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Um, while he was imprisoned, he was tortured brutally. And I remember just as a child going to see him in prison and the treatment that I received and my mom and my grandmother would receive at the hands of um, regime officials. And then in 1988, we um, weren't allowed to see him anymore. And at some point, I was only eight years old at the time, but uh, I recall, you know, there was a lot of tension in the family and people were worried. And people that we knew who had been caught up in the prison system uh, started receiving calls saying that their loved ones had been killed. And the same happened uh, to us. We eventually got the call. And to this day, we don't know where my uncle is, uh, like how he was murdered. I mean, we, we speculate. Um, and we don't know where he's buried. Uh, we weren't allowed to hold a funeral for him or anything of the sort. Um, this massacre um, really tore my family apart. The emotional toll that it took on my family, I, I can't express it in words. Uh, my mom and my grandmother both passed away without ever getting justice in this case. And that's been a major uh, motivating factor for me. It's like, you know, I, I, in order to sort of make things right for my family, I feel like I need to get justice in this case. In posing your question, um, I think you also indicated precisely why this killing is so important. You, know, you said Ebrahim Raisi, who's today the president, so-called president of Iran, um, was complicit in that, and that's absolutely accurate. Um, a lot of the people that were complicit in that mass crime um, are still today in positions of power in Iran. There has been zero accountability. And 
that's, I think, one of the key things that I'm fighting um, every day. It's that culture of impunity. Obviously, you know, I want justice in my case, but there's a larger cultural issue. And I know that it's something that you work on a lot as well, Naya, is that it's not simply enough to just, you know, condemn the Iranian regime or even um, change the Iranian regime, though that is incredibly important. But there needs to be a cultural shift in that country where impunity can no longer stand and people have to be held accountable for the mass crimes that they've committed in the past four years. You've done important work in Canada in particular with regards to the struggle for accountability and justice on the massacre in particular, but of course broadly about the regime. Can you describe um, some of the achievements you've had so far in Canada? Yeah, so in Canada, I, I think primarily the, the big win that we had was getting the Canadian Parliament to recognize the 1988 massacre as constituting crimes against humanity in 2013, I believe. And you know, this was a this was a big win um, to date. I don't think any other country has has recognized it. Other um, you know, international human rights groups and institutions have recognized it, but Canada was the stars aligned politically such that we could get every party um, in our Parliament to recognize it. And I think. Um, you know, at the time when we were doing it, a lot of people were asking, why is this important? And I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One, once we got that motion passed, I heard from, I can't even tell you how many families um, that had lost loved ones, um, telling me that they were so happy that this had happened. Somebody had recognized their pain. And I think that's really a part of it. The, the 1988 massacre, like a lot of the crimes that the Iranian regime has committed, is actually twofold. One is the crime itself, and second is just that denial and cover-up and, and telling people, you know, to use modern terminology, it's gaslighting people, telling them that the crime never happened. So the fact that Canada's parliament was willing to come out and say, no, this crime actually happened and it really was a crime and the perpetrators ought to be held to account, that mattered a lot. And the second part of why it was important, I think, is that, you know, today when you've got somebody like Ibrahim Raisi as the president, he can't lie and claim that you know he wasn't implicated in any crime and canada's government i think politically it's important they can't go and normalize relations with iran having once recognized this massacre um yeah. and I, I think you know this is the kind of work that uh, i know you are deeply engaged in now I, I you know one of the things i've been hoping for is that you know the united states um mm -hmm. would also take this in a really important step i guess maybe let me let me flip that question to you is and, and say, like, what do you think stands in the way of that kind of recognition um, being granted in the United States? Oh, well, under the Trump administration, good question. Under the Trump administration, um, Raisi and others responsible for the massacre were designated uh, for sanctions because of their, uh, specifically because of their human rights abuses. Um, and unfortunately, in the United States and perhaps in Canada, to some extent, um, foreign policy has become a very partisan matter. So in, in the current moment for um, the United States government to recognize the 1988 massacre as a crime against humanity doesn't seem, unfortunately, realistic because there's a there's a role line uh, for appeasement. Um, the United States Congress, of course, is, is a check on the executive and there are more voices, including among the Democratic Party who would be um, amenable to something like that. But that's where we are now. It's very important that voices uh, have been raised about Raisi's past and about what this massacre entailed and exactly what he personally did to ensure that so many people were 
uh, tortured and unjustly executed. Um, Kabajan, you are something of a legend on Twitter for your for your threads about the Iran lobby. Uh, I think it's a term that you may have coined, in fact, the Iran lobby hashtag. And could you talk before we get into some particulars, including about uh, Mahalati at Oberlin College, uh, the downing of PS752, the National Iranian American Council, uh, the New York Times. Before we get into some particulars, could you just describe what you mean when you say Iran lobby? What does that entail? Sure. Um, so first of all, I can't take credit for pointing this from Iran lobby. I came across it in the work of and others. So others before me um, were using it. I Hassan I some, okay. Yeah, I think I, I played some role in, in trying to popularize it. For your audience that, that might not know, Hassan Zayi is an Iranian political activist, and he was actually sued by the National Iranian American Council yeah. for you know trying to say that they are lobbyists, and he ended up prevailing in, the, in that lawsuit. Hassan Zayi ended up prevailing. Um, so in terms of what the Iran lobby is, I've tried hard to, to define you know, what I mean by that, by that term. It's a little bit difficult to do. So the Iran lobby... Um, first of all, is not a lobby for the Iranian people. I, I, I need to sort of clarify that at the outset. Um, they are people, it's a loose network of people who act as defenders of the Iranian regime in the West. Um, they are a loose network. They're not all part of an organization, though you know, there is an organization kind of the core of it. Um, the other thing that I want to clarify is that I have no evidence um, to you know, make the claim that these people are paid by the Iranian regime to do this kind of lobbying work. But uh, a lot of them, as far as I know, you know, have family connections to the Iranian regime, or they have ideological ties, or um, you know, they, they're, they're connected in some roundabout way. So they benefit from extending the life of the Iranian regime. Mm -hmm. And the work that they do, and they're, they're placed in you know, various institutions across the West, in the United States primarily, but also increasingly in Canada and elsewhere, um, you know, in the political world, in the think tank world, in academia and media and elsewhere. And they do several things. Um, they try to amplify, um, you know, good news stories about the Iranian regime. They try to make the Iranian regime seem like a normal government that, you know, it's, it's a government that has problems, but it's a normal one. Um, you know, a, a position that I staunchly disagree with because I don't think Iran's regime um, they also help to amplify bad news or bad acts committed by, uh, you know, the Iranian regime's adversaries, be it the United States or Israel or Saudi Arabia or whoever it is that, um, you know, Iran's regime is fighting with at a given at a given moment. The Iran lobby helps to amplify, uh, you know, the bad things that they're doing. They help um, assassinate the character of dissidents. Um, trying to portray them as being sort of uh, on the payroll of foreign governments. And the other thing that they do, and I think this is really their key role, is to narrow uh, the policy debate on Iran. So what they try to do is they try to paint somebody like me or somebody like you, people who believe that this regime cannot be reformed. Um, they try to portray us as being radical somehow, even though I think our demands are probably much more in line with the demands of the Iranian people. Um, and so by narrowing that debate and by presenting um, the story of what's happening in Iran as a simple story of, you know, a battle between conservatives who are bad and reformists who are actually liberals and want good things for Iran, um, they try to 
point Western policymakers in a particular direction in terms of how uh, policy should be made. In their worldview, um, all that needs to happen is, you know, reformists need to be uh, strengthened such that, um, you know, they, so that the Islamic Republic becomes a slightly uh, less awful place. That's, that's really all they want. Um, and I think, again, you know, talking about the 1988 massacre, I think is really instructive because a lot of the people that are um, considered reformists today um, were actually, you know, part of that. Uh, somebody like, like Musevi, for example, one of the leaders of the Green Movement, I mean, he was prime minister at the time this massacre was happening. He didn't have a word to say about it. To this day, he insisted those were sort of golden times for Iran. Um, so this whole notion is absolutely absurd, but the Iran lobby helps to popularize it in the Western imagination. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is a professor called a Professor of Peace at Oberlin College in the United States, one of the most um, uh, so-called progressive um, colleges uh, here in this country. And um, he was ambassador uh, from the Islamic Republic to the United Nations uh, during the massacre. and. Uh, uh, helped in great part to whitewash uh, that crime. And you are leading uh, the legal part of a, a, a very important effort to expose him. Uh, could you could you talk about that and why it's significant? Yeah, so Oberlin College, as you mentioned, is widely known to be a, a very liberal place. You know, it's the kind of place that goes to great lengths to root out systemic racism, mm -hmm. um, you know, where we're, they're at the forefront of kind of the, the, the new way of thinking about gender and so on. Like all these sort of uh, modern ideas um, that, are, that are in the academy, I think Oberlin is kind of at the forefront of all this. And yet somehow they employ a man who is on the record, like this is, this is not a secret. Um, he was, as you mentioned, Iran's ambassador to the United Nations in 1988. And as these killings were taking place and the world knew about them, you know, Amnesty International was issuing reports. Um, the UN Special Rapporteur was, you know, issuing reports and saying, look, there's a massacre happening in Iran. Uh, Professor uh, Mahalati was on the record, you know, noted in amnesty reports, noted in UN reports as saying, no, 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 these are all lies. There is no massacre happening. What you're hearing is propaganda from foreign governments and so on. He has managed to reinvent himself now, as you say, ludicrously, ironically, as the professor of peace. And, you know, the victims are rightly really outraged about this. And we brought this to the attention of Oberlin College. Um, our effort has not been acknowledged by Oberlin. They haven't even bothered to respond to our letter that was signed by over 600 people, um, many victims, many you know, leading activists and you know, human rights writers and so on. Um, the president of Oberlin College, her only reaction has been to block on social media anyone that's talked about this. And they supposedly launched an investigation um, which didn't involve speaking to any victims, didn't involve reviewing any documents, and uh, just declaring that, you know, Mahalati did not have knowledge of this crime. I, you know, in a, in a response that we wrote to Oberlin, uh, the line that I used was, you have to exert a great deal of effort not to know his role, right? Because it's so well documented, you don't have to take our word for it. So right. I think what this points to um, is something that I'm sure you're well aware of, your audience is probably well aware of is this Western sort of hypocrisy. Um, you know, when it comes to human rights issues at home, um, exerting a great deal of effort in sort of weeding out anyone that, that thinks incorrectly about these topics or hasn't adopted the latest progressive facts. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to, you know, people from that side of the world, 
somehow these same rules don't apply. Our lives don't really seem to matter that much. Right. And right. It's, it's a real frustration that we have to battle. So well said. Um, could you talk about, you, you've already mentioned the National Iranian American Council. Uh, could you talk a, a bit more about what they're all about, how, what their part is in the Iran lobby, and um, how in recent times they have maybe evolved? You've done a lot of analysis, including some quantitative even analysis of their of their tweets. What are their strategies? Why do we say um, Nyack lobbies for mullah is a hashtag that really gained traction? Yeah, that's a good hashtag. I use it often. Quite, quite accurate. Um, so the National Iranian American Council um, is an organization that was founded by a person named Trita Parsi. He's no longer with the organization. He's now um, executive vice president of the Quincy Institute or something, an equally questionable organization. Um, it has a very shady past in terms of um, who donated to it, who helped set it up. There are rumors, I can't substantiate them, that Javad Zarif, the former Iranian foreign minister, had a role. Um, as a result of the lawsuit that I alluded to earlier with Hassan Dali, a lot of documents came forth showing that, you know, the thinking behind NIAC was, you know, let's build an organization that actually helps um, get the message out about how good the Iranian regime is. Um, the National Iranian American Council um, operates quite smartly. Um, on the one hand, it presents itself as a civic organization interested in uniting the Iranian American community, getting them active, getting them to vote, you know, taking people, putting them in, um, you know, working for senators and, and Congress people, all of these are good things. And I, I you know, don't wanna suggest that it, it's a bad thing for Iranians uh, to be involved in the American political process. But alongside this, uh, you know, that, that, that's the way they kind of bring people in, especially young people, because, you know, young people are, are drawn to this message. Yeah. Um, they also have, they also speak a lot about these things that on first glance sound very good. They talk a lot about peace and peace is a wonderful thing. I mean, who doesn't love peace, right? But it's only when you actually dig into their work that you begin to realize what peace means to them. Peace to them means capitulating to every demand of the Iranian regime. It means not speaking about the human rights crisis in Iran. It means uh, continuing to perpetuate that story that I told you about reformists and hardliners it means that anytime uh, you know, a US administration takes, takes a hard line on Iran, standing against that hard line and saying, no, 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 that, you know, this harms the Iranian people when there is actual ample evidence that the Iranian people themselves want um, foreign, not foreign intervention, I wanna be very clear on that, not foreign intervention, but foreign solidarity. And oftentimes that solidarity is in the form of putting pressure on the people that are doing the repression, that are actually taking away their rights. And, the tactic, and one of the things that I've been trying to analyze is the tactic of NIAC is to occasionally allude to the repression that happens in Iran. So they can't be accused of never speaking about it. They do speak about it occasionally, but just creating an avalanche of other information, incorrect information about what the situation in Iran and you know, making it seem as if the demand for regime change is a crazy radical demand um, and far from what the Iran people that's the role that NIAC plays. And I think it's kind of the, the center of the Iran lobby. It's an organization. Right. And as part of that, that center of the, the, the node, if you will, for the Iran lobby, they also attack activists who are taking on the, who are taking on the regime, which is one of the more um, unfortunate aspects of what you, you've been on the receiving end of that quite a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah. Let me ask you, Kave, about um, PS752, the commercial airliner Ukrainian uh, aircraft that was intentionally uh, shot down by the Islamic um, Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. Um, uh, many of the victims are obviously um, Iranians who are uh, Iranian Canadian and, uh, and Iranians who more recently migrated to Canada. Uh, could you describe the efforts there and uh, how you expect the Canadian government's response to be? Yeah, well, what I expect the Canadian government's response to be is quite different than what the Canadian government's response has been. So, uh, you know, the facts, I think, are, are well known. Uh, the Iranian regime shot down a plane shortly after Qasem Soleimani was killed. Um, the Iranian regime shot a plane. Initially, they denied. Initially, they said that this was, you know, a technical error or something that led to it. Um, the West had intelligence showing that wasn't the case. Eventually, the regime had to come clean and, and indicate that they had shot it. They maintained that it was a mistake. Um, there is increasing evidence that it may not have been a mistake. I don't, I don't know if the, the case is conclusive just yet, but I think you know, a lot of the families are of that belief. And I think increasingly facts are coming to light saying that you know, if you leave your airspace open um, in a situation where you're expecting some armed conflict um, right. and, you, and you do a lot of questionable things, and there are a lot of facts that just, just don't add up. All these mm -hmm. things are too much for, for them to be coincidence. Mm -hmm. And then you shoot down a plane and then you try to deny it and you don't release the black box and so right. on. It really points to a guilty mind. It really points to a regime that may have done something sinister in order to blame the United States. Um, and, and I, I you know, ultimately they got caught. But I think one of the things they were trying to do with the help of the Iran lobby was to create this narrative that the U.S. had done this uh, awful thing with, with yeah. some people, trying to pin the blame on them. The expectation from the Canadian government is that you know they would take this issue incredibly seriously, put all sorts of pressure on Iran, um, use you know targeted sanctions on the people responsible, take the case to every international tribunal possible, and uh, try to demand justice. Unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. Um, Canada's government has, as far as I know, not launched a domestic criminal um, investigation. Uh, there is a process ongoing to bring the case to international civil aviation authorities, but it's a very... Um, slow moving effort. Um, the families are incredibly frustrated because there's been no assistance to them in seeking justice um, at the International Criminal Court. Canada can't for jurisdictional reasons take the matter to the International Criminal Court, but you know they, the families have basically been told like expect no support from the Canadian government on this issue. Um, and you know this this is this is a source of incredible frustration. The people that were responsible, as I mentioned, you know, some of those figures are well known. We have Magnitsky sanctions legislation in Canada, but those names have not been added to our uh, to our blacklist. And it's really just inexplicable why the Canadian government isn't taking this case as seriously as it should. I mean, yeah. you know, dozens upon dozens of Canadian citizens were killed, and somehow we're just letting this letting this go without any serious and meaningful investigation. Right. To what extent is that a function or a result of the Trudeau foreign policy or worldview in general? Do you do you blame it on a certain naivete on the part of Trudeau and the, the left in Canada? Or do you think if a, a, a right-wing government was in power, it would be different? That's a really excellent question. I mean, it's purely speculation on my, on my part, but I suspect that, you know, having Trudeau in charge 
has not helped matters. Trudeau's worldview is one in which, um, you know, in which he tries to extend a hand, and that's that's been his his thing to extend a hand and try to repair relations with the Iranian regime. The Iranian regime certainly doesn't make it easy. Uh, they, uh, even despite Trudeau's efforts, have taken Canadians hostage, have you know killed Canadians in prison, and so on. Yeah. Uh, and yet this, as, as you say, this naivete continues that somehow if we just use the right words, if we just sit down with them at the right table, that we can somehow get them to change their behavior. I think the, the failure of the liberal government under Trudeau has been, you know, they're, they're yeah, the, just the failure to recognize that this is a regime that is not ordinary. They are a dictatorship and they're a dictatorship of the worst kind of their, and they're a dictatorship that doesn't respond to positive incentives. They're a regime that responds solely to pressure. And that's what we should be focused on. Yeah, and that's dangerous to the future of the free world itself, right? So even if if it's not out of a moral concern for uh, Iranians and Syrians and others who are uh, Israelis who are who are greatly impacted by the nature of this regime, it's a direct threat to Canada and to other countries in the democratic world. Would you say? I absolutely would say. In fact, I, I want to turn that question around because I know you think a lot about not just Iran but the free world as a whole. And like, do you, do you see this kind of mentality, the naivete that you, that you talk about in the United States, and not just with respect to Iran but, but to other countries as well? Do you, how do you yeah. see it? Yeah, I do see it as part of a package deal. You know, because the, the same outlook, the same treatment is extended to the Communist Party of China. It's um, the same uh, attitude is taken with the the communist regime in Cuba. Um, it's a it's a unfortunately part of a partisan approach, as I mentioned before, and uh, the kind of um, bifurcation, polarization that we have in free countries now extends, unfortunately, to how the two parties or the two sides have come to view these repressive regimes. And the irony is that the party in Canada and in the United States that is supposed to stand up for LGBT rights, women's rights, um, minority rights is is the one that is uh, usually defending or at the very least um, reluctant to uh, exert much pressure on the regime that is um, arguably the very worst in the world for women and LGBT and- uh, Totally and agree, and I, and I think the, the underlying theory here yeah. is that dialogue can improve behavior. Right. I think there are probably states that are transitioning maybe towards democracy. They're kind of in the middle where that is actually true with diplomacy, sitting down, economic incentive and so on, kind of bring them to the side of the good. But there are regimes out there that are so far gone, you know, be it China, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, whatever, that, yeah. you know, efforts at that dialogue are just used by them to uh, gain legitimacy, extend their life and you know, win economic concessions without actually giving anything. So I, I would love for somebody in the Liberal Party, among the Democrats, people who believe in this kind of dialogue, to point me to an example where a regime like this has actually been willing to change its behavior as a result of dialogue and not pressure. I don't think you'd be able to find one. Yeah, and unfortunately, we didn't take lessons from the Cold War. I mean, people like Václav Havel uh, were very clear in how efforts at diplomacy and understanding and peacemaking and all of that 
were very, very directly um, harming them inside those uh, Eastern Bloc countries. And uh, it's not as though uh, somebody like Václav Havel was particularly hawkish. <laughs> he was living in that country and wanted to, he wanted to live and, and survive, I'm sure. Um, but he saw that the movement for peace, the movement for um, dialogue at any cost, negotiations, um, economic incentives, that was all really harming their efforts internally to exert pressure for peaceful overthrow. Um, Kabajan, um, something that you've been active about also, which has gained a lot of traction inside the country, uh, activists such as Hussein Arunaki uh, writing about it courageously in the Wall Street Journal, is the bias in the media uh, towards uh, towards this regime. And um, uh, you have in your, in your tweet threads really uh, devoted a lot of attention to exposing that. Um, I think at many times you were the lone voice. And now, of course, it's it's really it's seeded and, and there there's it's germinating and there's a lot of growth in terms of of understanding and um, awareness about how media in the free world is actually very easily it seems uh, manipulated um, just as social media is manipulated with disinformation and and ma manipulation of of algorithms and such even the traditional mainstream media such as the New York Times seems to really be at the very least echoing uh, the regime line, if not uh, promoting it in some cases. Do you wanna say a bit about that and your efforts there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the media in the West has fallen victim to the same mentality that a lot of the other institutions have. Oberlin College, you know, we talked about earlier. It's this idea that somehow the West is so, um, so sin, such a, you know, it was conceived in sin and it is such a bad actor that it somehow can't stand against, um, you know, bad regimes in the world. And so the thinking, the impression that I get, at, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post or what have you, is that somehow, uh, you know, there is a moral equivalence between the United States and Iran. And the story that the New York Times consistently tells is that, you know, the Iranian regime is just kind of a misunderstood regime. Um, and again, the Iran lobby has been quite successful in selling this story that there is a struggle internally between conservatives or hardliners and reformists. And all that the United States needs to do is, you know, remove all pressure, strengthen reformists, and Iran will somehow magically become a liberal democracy. It's a ludicrous story. Um, so partly it's, the, it's that mindset that's prevalent in American media, but partly it's personalities, right? Um, mm -hmm often say personalist policy. So there are people who are, I would say, sympathetic to the Iranian regime or certain sympathetic to certain factions of the Iranian regime in positions of power um, in these media organizations. And their framing of stories is, um, you know, is one that kind of keeps echoing these false narratives about Iran. Um, they spend a lot of time talking about how the Iranian regime has this core legitimacy that some of its figures are immensely popular. Yeah. Again, it's not that they never talk about human rights because I think that would be so glaring an omission that people would take notice. Occasionally they talk about the human rights crisis, but they never put emphasis on it that is due. Um, so I did this analysis of the New York Times, for example, where at the time that I wrote it, you know, 3% of the bylines of the, of the New York Times writer had been about human rights in Iran. I mean, Iran is one of the leading violators of human rights in the world. Yeah, and even, even when human rights is mentioned, 
uh, very often it the human rights situation, if it's worsening, is blamed on U.S. foreign policy. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, this idea that sanctions are somehow to blame for everything. So one of the things I often do on Twitter, just as a joke, is when Iran does something uniquely horrific, I say, you know, sanctions are to blame for this. The idea yeah. being, of course, you know, this is not sanctions. The, Iran's, uh, the Iranian regime has committed these atrocities for 40 years at times where there have been sanctions, where there haven't been sanctions. It's just some, it's in the regime's DNA. Right. Yeah. But the story that the New York Times and the Washington Post and others tell mm-hmm. is that here's a regime that's misunderstood in the West. It has this beleaguered reform movement. Um, and if only we would remove the sanctions, everything would be OK. And that's exactly what the Iranian regime wants the West to understand. Right. Of course, that's not true. And as you mentioned, you know, the Wall Street Journal ran a great op ed by Hassan, about Hossein Ronahi a few weeks ago, saying, like, this is not the real picture of Iran. The real Iran doesn't look like this. So please listen to our stories from inside the country. Yeah. And um, I think that's really what's missing. Excellent, excellent uh, description and, and explanation. Um, one last question, Kavijan, and it's a, <laughs> it's a juicy one um, about uh, US foreign policy. Um, you have uh, favored unmistakably a tougher line on uh, Iran and um, have shown how the lobby uh, is actively pressing for a soft line on Iran. And yet you have been public um, about not supporting uh, Donald Trump, who really pushed the much harder line. (laughs) So um, can you explain how you came to the conclusion that regardless of the foreign policy that you much prefer to the current one, you still believe that uh, voting for Biden over Trump was the better option. Yeah. So first of all, I'm Canadian, so I didn't get to vote. But in terms of how I would have voted had I been American, I, you know, it would have been for, for Biden, and I, it would be for Biden again if, if Trump was to was to run again. Um, look, I want to get rid of the Iranian regime because I believe in liberal democracy. It's not just that I don't like clerics. It's not just that I don't like you know, a, a theocracy. I don't like those things, but it's because I'm committed to certain principles. And the principle of liberal democracy is, is one that I thought was under threat mm-hmm. um, by Trump and the Trump administration. Less so, I think, the administration. I think there were a lot of people who were committed to, to good things that were just trying to get things done. But Donald Trump himself, personally, was somebody yeah. that I don't think has very strong commitments to liberal democracy. I don't think he believes in the free press. You know, as I, I criticize the press constantly, but I think when the president of the United States comes out and calls the press the enemy of the people, which is a language you know he's adopted from other uh, from dictatorial regimes of the past, I think that's that's an incredibly dangerous signal about his thinking on you know free speech and free expression. Um, a lot of the comments that he's made about people of different ethnicities, um, you know, throughout the campaign, that really bothered me. I don't think that has a place in a liberal democratic society. The lies that he told, all politicians lie. Don't get me wrong, Biden lies too. But the but the type of lies that he told and the way he bet the truth, I think, you know, if, if you don't even if you're not even willing to pay lip service to the truth, um, I, I don't think you believe in liberal democracy. Liberal democracy needs truth to survive. That's the sort of the oxygen it needs. Um, so for all those reasons, um, I don't think, despite the pressure that he put on the Iranian regime. I don't think Trump was the right choice. I, I, I stand by that. Um, I think I am past the point of thinking that the enemy of my enemy is necessarily my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Trump was the enemy of my enemy, but I'm not willing to fall into that false logic. And, um, you know, the, the, the Biden administration 
has been terrible as far as I'm concerned, but I don't worry about the United States becoming less of a liberal democracy as a result of the Biden administration. I disagree with them on policy, but I think that's just what politics is. Politics is in a liberal democracy, it's, it's disagreeing on policy. With Trump, about- I worry about something far more, far more um, structural, far right. more structural damage to the All liberal right. democracy. How about the promotion of democracy in other countries? Which which of the two, Biden, Trump, is better on that regard? Um, I think they're both terrible, frankly. Um, you know, the Biden administration, I don't really see them doing anything to promote democracy, which I think is a critical thing that a, you know, a government like the United States should do. And, you know, when you've got somebody like Trump championing uh, Duterte or, or Bolsonaro in Brazil or all these other very questionable figures who, again, don't believe in liberal democracy. I, I think the message that dictators around the world got was that as long as we get on the good side of Trump, we're fine. Um, and I don't think that's the message that I want dictatorships to take away from their interaction with the U.S. government. Okay. Thank you so much again, Kaveh. Uh, Kaveh Shahru is Senior Fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. And again, I'm Maryam Amar Sadegi, also from McDonald-Laurier Institute. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been Talking in the Free World with Mariam Memar Sadegi. The show is a production of Canada's Macdonald Laurier Institute. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, give us your rating and review, and please share with others. If you have suggestions, including on topics or guests, I'd be grateful. You can write to me on Twitter at Memar Sadegi. Thanks for listening.